Well, good morning, church. Uh, as Kevin said, I am uh, super excited to be here with you this morning. Uh, as I was in Baltimore with the team on Thursday and Friday and uh, most of the day yesterday. And um, as it would have it, when we were talking about this a few weeks ago, uh, Aaron has never had an opportunity to, uh, to stay on a Sunday in Baltimore and actually be part of uh, the service there. So um, we drew straws and I got the short one. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I... I offered uh, to come back and to preach so that he could stay and to see uh, on a Sunday morning that wonderful ministry. As Kevin said, we would love uh, for you to just continue to be praying for our partners in Baltimore. Uh, this morning is actually the first service that they've had in their original West Baltimore location at Frederick Douglass High School uh, in almost two years. Uh, so we sent a team a, a couple months ago to help them with their, their second location, which is outside of Baltimore in Roystertown. And uh, that location has been meeting live uh, since then. But because their other location met in a school, they just were sort of at the mercy of the school. So this morning, after the canvassing that we did in the neighborhood yesterday, after knocking on doors and praying with people and inviting uh, what I believe was probably like, like a thousand uh, invites that we handed out, uh, this morning will be, will be the first time they've met in almost two years. And so uh, we're praying that the community would just recognize uh, that God is moving in that place um, and that they would be drawn to the Lord uh, through what would happen this morning. And, and then, of course, I get the pleasure uh, of being here with you. And I'm, I'm really excited because as we're in 2 Samuel chapter 23, we're almost done. It's the second to last book in 2 Samuel. Um, we've been on this journey quite a long time uh, through First and Second Samuel. When we wrap this up, we're going to be moving into, uh, into a Christmas series, and then actually we're going to be moving into uh, Colossians, I believe, after that. And so uh, we're getting to really to deal with sort of the end uh, of David's life and to see really this thing that we've seen evolve over the course of these two books and what God has done in and through David. And that's, that's where we find ourselves in 2 Samuel 23. If you remember from last week, 2 Samuel 22 takes the form of a song. Even though it's not in Psalms, it, it is absolutely a psalm that David wrote. Um, and then as we move into 23, I, I just want to kind of remind you guys, or maybe tell some of you for the first time, that, that, the, that the chapter and the verse numbers uh, was something that was added early on when Scripture was compiled to help us find the places in the Bible. And it's, it's not original to the text as it was written. And so I think it's smart when we start to look at this song that is right next to another song to recognize that this is likely part of the same song, and yet we get this little division in the text, and it, and it tells us why the adders of the, the chapters and the verses probably broke this up, because it says at the very beginning of chapter 23, now these are the last words of David. Now, this doesn't mean that this was David's like, deathbed confessional, right, that he had somebody come and he was laying there and, you know, write down these things. No, these are just the last recorded official words of David. If we look at Kings um, and if we even look at the next, the next chapter in this book, we see that there are some things that happen after this. And yet, this is sort of his final proclamation. This is the things that he's thinking about as he knows he's at the end of his life, as he's pondering on uh, all that has happened. Um, and we would be wise to, to consider it as such when we, when we look at it and we, and we think about it through the lens of a man who has reigned for some 40 years uh, as king and seen all types of things. And, and these are the thoughts that he has at the end of his days. And so before we take a look at that, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer uh, and just to invite him to speak to us this time. God, we just, uh, we praise you for your word. We know that your word is truth. Lord, we know that it is without error. God, we know that it is breathed out by your spirit and it is profitable for teaching and for training and for rebuke and for uh, training in righteousness. And so God, would you speak to us now through your word, Lord? Would this not, not be anything that I have to say, but Lord, would it be what you have to say, Lord, through your holy word? through your spirit. God, would you open our eyes and our hearts, Lord, to hear from you in a new way. Lord, not that we might gain some new knowledge, but that we might be changed. Uh, let us leave here differently than we came in, and Lord, all to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
So we're going to try to handle this in a couple of, in a couple of sections because as you guys see, we have this, this psalm at the beginning uh, part of the passage to deal with. And then uh, if any of you guys have read ahead, you know and you remember from the last time that I was up here that I, I, I bemoaned a little bit the, the complexity of the names that I was dealt. And the end of this chapter uh, is like tenfold that. So we're going to try to we're going to try to deal with this in a couple of sections that are just going to help us understand it uh, a little bit better. So let, let's take a look at Second uh, Samuel twenty three, and we're just going to look one through four first. It says, "The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me." His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. So as we think about, well, what are the things that would consume a man's mind as he was prepared to offer his last words. Somebody who was such a, a, a prolific writer as David, you know, we, we have such a huge portion of the Psalms attributed to him. So what, what, are the, what are the things that are on his mind as he prepares to write these last words? And the first thing that I want you guys to see is that he is memorializing his mission. He's contemplating the things that God has given him to do. And this is like many of us, right? As we, as we were to draw near to our last days and even some of our days long before then, we spend time in those quiet moments wondering about the things that God has given us to do, the things that he's called us to do, the things that uh, either we did or maybe we did not do that he has called us to do, the things that uh, cause us joy and the things that fill us with regret. And as he's remembering these things, we start to see come to life in the words that he's chosen here some very applicable truths. One that I want you to see is that he remembers that he's a king called by God. You see, he says right there in verse 1, the oracle of the man who was raised on high. This isn't this isn't like a prideful statement. This isn't uh, a look at me, I am on high. This is a recognition because if we look at it with what goes next, the anointed of the God of Jacob, we see that there is a recognition in David's part that it was God who plucked him out of the place that he was in and that it was God who placed him in a place uh, of authority. And so when we say that he's a king called by God, when he says he was the one who was raised on high, it's not... It's not a recognition of something he's done, but rather a recognition of what God has done. And we can see this if you guys, uh, in, in some ways this morning is going to be a little bit of a survey of all the things that have happened uh, up to this point in First and Second Samuel, because this, this point just serves as a reflection. It re serves as a place for us to look back and to remember where we've been. If you turn to First Samuel 16, I just want to remind you guys of exactly what what David is talking about when he said that God has raised him up and God has anointed him king. If you guys remember, the, the people tried to call for themselves a king, right? That's what we read way back at the beginning of 1 Samuel. They looked around and they were afraid and they said, God, and, and really to Samuel specifically as the man of God, give us a king, we want somebody that looks like the other nations, somebody that's going to lead us in battle, somebody that is going to go out before us and care for us. And despite the folly of that, God gives in to their requests. Instead of God being their king and God being their leader, they want a king that looks like what they want him to look like. And so he gives in to that, and that king is Saul. And if you remember from the description that we're given of Saul, right? It said he was head and shoulders above everybody else. It said he was handsome right? All of these things that you look on and you're like, wow, man, that, that guy really looks like he ought to be a king. And yet, on the outside, he looked like a king. On the inside, he was a man who not only was often sinful, not only was often disobedient to God, 
but also a man who was terribly insecure. And we see that in the way that he pursues after David. Instead of embracing David as someone who's clearly uh, inspired and given by God to help lead the people, he's afraid of David and worried about David. And he spends most of his life trying to chase and pin down David because of his terrible insecurities. And so at the top of chapter 16 in 1 Samuel, it says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? since I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Why are you bemoaning this? Why? What is the deal? I've rejected him. He has lost his opportunity to be king. And so God tells Samuel, I want you to go and find and anoint the next king. And of course, Samuel is afraid. He knows exactly how insecure Saul is. He's worried that Saul is going to kill him if he goes out and anoints somebody else king. And yet, he obeys what God has told him. And he goes to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem. And it tells us a little bit down there in verse 5. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to a sacrifice. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. You see, we, we hadn't quite learned our lesson, right? He saw Eliab, the oldest son, and probably looked on all those same characteristics as Saul had. And he's like, oh, this is probably the one that God sent me to anoint king. This has got to be it. But here's the deal, and here's why this ties back to the passage that we're talking about. What does... What does God say? But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outside appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And what happens after that? He, he brings every son, parades every son before Samuel one by one, and none of them are the man that God wants. Seven sons go by. And Samuel goes, well, like, do you got anybody else? <laughs> you know, God sent me here to anoint somebody. Uh, these are none of them are it. Do you have anybody else? And there was yet one. There was one who was out in the field tending to the sheep, the littlest one. And so he sends for them. And it says in verse 12, and he sent and brought him. And now he was ready. And he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise and anoint him, for this is he. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went to Ramah. You, you see, when we, when we look at what he's saying in 2 Samuel chapter 23, we can't help but think about this moment where he was called in out of the field where his brothers had already been there, where none of them were to be the anointed one, and yet for some reason, unexplained to him, he was the anointed one. And so when he says, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, this is not a prideful thing. This is a recognition that I was just off wandering around tending to sheep when God plucked me right out of that and anointed me king. So he's a king called by God, but he's also a king speaking on behalf of God. And this, this is very interesting because this is different than any, any other psalm. And I, I want to point this out to you, and I think some of, that's some of the reason why we find it here and instead of in the book of Psalms, because we're to draw special attention to this. Look at the words that David says. He says, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken, and the rock of Israel has said to me. He is clearly saying that what he's about to say comes from God. It's, it's interesting, even if we look at the top where it says the oracle of David, right? He, there's already a claim, even in verse 1, that he's going to be speaking on behalf of God. I had to do a little bit of research because I wanted to understand what this word oracle means because I think sometimes we just we come to understand things in our modern language a little bit differently. Um, and it's very much similar to the idea of a prophet, which we also misunderstand. Uh, this is not the idea necessarily that someone is able to see the future, although sometimes prophecies that the Lord uh, gives them helps them to see the future. Let's see if there's a, nope, no bottle of water down there. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Even though sometimes prophecies help people to see the future, 
uh, or to tell the future so that they can be confirmed to be by God. That's not the nature of a prophecy. The nature of a prophecy is a person who speaks on behalf of God, and that is the same idea of an oracle. Somebody who speaks and says, thus says the Lord, and what they say is irrefutable. And so when he's claiming to be an oracle on behalf of God and the Spirit and saying the Spirit of the Lord speaks to me, what we can determine is that what is about to happen is that he is about to tell us something that is from God. And this is super interesting because if we look at the other Psalms, that's almost never the case. It's almost never the case that, that David is claiming to speak from God. You see, David, David often speaks about God and he often speaks to God in his psalms. If we think about the psalms that we're familiar with, it would help us to recognize that David is in the habit of reflecting on God's goodness. Thank you so much, Leanne. Ooh, even got ice. Look at that. Oh, that helps. And so, he, he, he's in the habit of reflecting on God's goodness. He's in the habit of calling out to God for these things. But, very seldom do we see any psalm where it's asserting that what is covered in the psalm is God speaking to the people. Now, it shouldn't be a far stretch from us because we know that all Scripture is breathed out by God. We know that the writers of Scripture are carried along by the Holy Spirit. So even as, God is, even as David is thinking about God or is calling out to God or is writing about God, even that is inspired by God. So it shouldn't be a stretch for us to think that he is able to speak on behalf of God but what I want to call your attention to is that it's unusual. There is no other place that we find where he makes this exact assertion. And so we ought to take notice. And there are two places in the Psalms um, where it, it appears as if the psalmist is asserting something on behalf of God. And that's Psalm 50, which is one by Asaph. And this is one you guys might be familiar with because it's the one where God says, the cattle on a thousand hills are mine, right? Uh, he says, I have no need for your burnt... Uh, offerings or sacrifices. If I was hungry, I would not tell you, right? So that's very clearly an assertion on behalf of God. And then there's one other place. So the Psalm 50 was written by Asaph, not by David. Psalm 110, though, is written by David. And I want us to look at that. And you can kind of keep one finger in the Psalms because we're going to talk about a bunch of Psalms today. And I'm also going to, while you guys find that, I'm going to get another sip of water. I don't know what happened when I stepped up here. <clears throat> okay, Psalm 110, if you guys are there, says, the Lord says to my Lord. Now, so this isn't directly the same way that we are looking at it in 2 Samuel 23, where it says, God says for me to say this, but he says, the Lord, meaning the Lord God, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. So when we think about this psalm, if you guys are familiar with it, you know that this psalm is a, is a messianic psalm. This psalm is specifically pointing to the Messiah. The, the only other place we see in Scripture, other than where we just looked at, in 2 Samuel 23, where David is asserting to be speaking on behalf of God, he is talking specifically about the Messiah. And so then when we look at 2 Samuel 23 and we look at that song and he says, I'm speaking on behalf of the God of Israel, the rock of Israel, we, we can't help but think that what comes after that is going to be inspired by God and also to be talking about something that is, that is far and above what David's life experience is. So let's, let's look at that and see what happens if we look at it with that understanding. Because we see that he is a king called by God. He is a king speaking on behalf of God. But we also know that he is a king after God's own heart. You, you see it says it there in the text when 
one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. You see, that reverence for the commands of God, that obedience for the commands of God is what makes David the ruler that he is. It's what makes him the person who is able to lead God's people in the way that he does because rather than what does the king want to do, that was always Saul's, that was always Saul's preoccupation. What do I want to do, right? God said, go out and utterly destroy the Amalekites and Saul's like, well, yeah, but there was this good stuff that we wanted to hang on to, right? It's not what does God want to do, it's what does Saul want to do. And, and rather, David, he operates in the fear of the Lord. It guides him. The knowledge of God guides him in the way that he rules. And it's not just that. It's not just that he does his very best to, uh, to operate in what God has commanded, but it's also what happens when he doesn't. Right? That's the key difference that we see across First and Second Samuel between Saul and between David. Right? Saul messes up, he makes excuses. Saul messes up, he, he's, he comes up with reasons why he did whatever he did. David makes an error, he transgresses, he repents. That's, that's what makes him the man, what we call him, right? The man after God's own heart, a king after God's own heart. And there's no better place that we can see this than in, in Psalm 32. I, want, I, you know, I told you guys, keep your finger right there in the Psalms because we're going to be hanging out back and forth between there. I think it makes sense, right? Because we're looking at a song that David wrote. Why would we not look at other songs that David wrote as context for this? But, but look at what David says in Psalm 32. You want to know why he's a king after God's own heart? You know what? I want to know why he rules in the fear of the Lord. You want to know why he rules justly as we're reflecting on the end of his life? Look at what he says. He says, Blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts against whom no, the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, and, and this is it. This is, I, I want you to see, because this is explicitly the difference between between Saul and David. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David is saying, when, when my sin was before me and I didn't confess it, not, not kept silent about it to other people, you know, although I'm sure some of it is done in secret, but when I didn't bring it before the Lord, when I didn't confess it, when I didn't come to God knowing that he would forgive and knowing that he would set me back into this right place, it was heavy upon me. My bones wasted away. He said, day and night I sit with it. And yet, in verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I didn't try to make excuses for it. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time where you may still be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, you sh they shall not reach you. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. This is such a beautiful a beautiful thought on behalf of David that shows us why he is a king after God's own heart and also why he is the man that he is. I mean, the, even just the joy that he has in the way that this passage starts. He says, blessed is the man whose transgressions is forgiven. Not blessed is the man who has been given everything. Not blessed is the man who was plucked up out of a field and put as a king. Not blessed is the man who has armies and kings at his disposal. Who, not blessed is the man who has a great job who has a nice house or a good car or a wonderful wife or a family full of kids. All those are wonderful blessings. But blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven. You see, what allowed David to be a king after God's own heart is he understood more than anything that his status was dependent on God and his forgiveness and his love for him. And so that led him to obey him and to want to lead his people likewise. And so we see... A king that's called by God, a king speaking on behalf of God, a king after God's own heart. And then it says, what we just read, one rules justly, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout 
from this earth. And we see a king to usher in peace and to usher in justice. You see, sometimes we, we forget that that was David's job. It was, it was David who really came along to shore up the things that God had promised. God had told them to go into this land of promise and to utterly drive out the inhabitants, and yet they had failed to do that. And so even hundreds of years later, when we're seeing the people of God become established in their cities and in their kingdoms, they're still struggling to fight these battles because they didn't obey to start with. They didn't utterly drive out these other inhabitants. And in, in many ways, this was David's real task of his life. That's why he spends so much time in battle, because his job was to, to go to war, to drive out these people that had inhabited the land of promise. And so we, we see that in the way that he ushers in justice, but also in the way that he begins to usher in peace. Ultimately, it's not a peace that he's going to fully know in his lifetime, but when we think about what Solomon does when he comes after him, it's the reason that Solomon can be the man that he is, is because David has established a kingdom that is secure and at peace and free from its, in, its enemies. And so rather than going to war, Solomon can focus on building the temple, and Solomon can write, and he can think about the Lord and about his goodness, and he can become the man of wisdom that we know him to be because he didn't have to be the man of war that David was. And in this, we, we see this beautiful imagery that we're given there. When, when that king rules justly over them, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. What a beautiful picture of what a righteous ruler does for his people. He makes it possible. He shines his brightness on them to illuminate them, but he also comes in like the dew that helps the grass to grow, that, that, that mercy and that grace that's new and that helps the kingdom to flourish. And so there's, there's a beautiful picture here, but there's also an illusion that helps us, illusion, not illusion, A-L-L, Okay, not a magic trick. Uh, an illusion that helps us to see the rest of this passage more fully because there are some ways in which David did this. There are some ways in which he was this king of justice that, that ushered in peace and was a blessing to his kingdom. And then there are a whole lot of ways in which he had not yet fulfilled and could never fulfill these things that are being said about this person. And so it leaves us with a question. He's memorialized his mission, and yet he recognizes that not, not all of it has been accomplished. Not all of it has been done that, that God said would be done. And so that leads him to, to ponder God's promises. It's sort of the other thing that we do as we contemplate our life in those, those quiet moments. If we think about what has happened in our life, we, we are at first, I think, led to think about our accomplishments, like, much like David did. What are the things that I have done that contribute to the wholeness of my life? And yet, there is a way in which that will always lead to disappointment. If I'm placing my satisfaction in my life in the things that I have done, I'm always going to come up short. There is always going to be some area where I have regret or where I, where I didn't do a thing that I knew I should have. And yet, this leads David to ponder God's promises, the area which, if we really measure our lives by, if we really measure our lives by something that will matter, it will be, what did God do in and through my life? What is, he, what is he going to do? Are we measuring our accomplishments by what we did or according to God's plans? And so he moves to pondering God's promises, and that's what we see in the rest of this song, and we're going to dive into that. I want to remind you, because we're saying pondering God's promises, what is the promise that we're talking about? And so I wish you would flip with me back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. You guys are going to get a Bible workout this morning. Build those thumb muscles. Use those texting fingers for something else. 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we see this promise that he's reflecting on, that God has made to him. Down in verse 12, he says, this is, this is uh, Nathan speaking to David on behalf of God. 
He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, well, that's sort of the place that we find ourselves, right? He's, his days are pretty much fulfilled and he, he's about to lie down with his fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son and when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of man and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And in accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So David knew that he had this promise. He knew that he had this promise from God that there would be somebody that would sit on his throne forever. And so as he sits in these final moments and he wonders and he contemplates the successes and the failures of his life, he can't help but also contemplate what God has promised him. And to see some things about that, and I want you to see that with me. One, I want you to know that this promise, it's valid. And we, we can see that when he says, therefore, does not my house stand so with God? He's wondering about this promise that God has made him, but God is, God is the article there. Does it not stand so with God? And that's what makes this promise valid. You see, for, for any kind of agreement to be valid, the person making the agreement has to have the authority to make the agreement, right? If I said, Austin... I'm going to put it in writing that, that I'm going to give you my Ferrari. I don't have a Ferrari. I don't have any authority to give you my Ferrari. I don't have any authority to give you the dealership's Ferrari because I don't have any authority in that situation. And yet when, God says, or when David says, does my house not stand so with God, he is recognizing that God is the one who has made this promise to him. And so it is valid. He is the one who has all of the authority to keep the promise that he made. It's not dependent on David's ability or David's authority. It is dependent on the validity of God's promise and his authority to be able to fulfill this thing that he has said when he said that he would put somebody on the throne of David forever. It's also a promise that is certain. Look down just a little bit. He says, For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things, and secure. This is just a fancy way of saying this thing that God has promised is absolutely certain. You see, as he reflects on this promise that God has made that hasn't been fulfilled yet, he is also filled with certainty that God will do this thing. How does he become so sure of this? God's own character is what speaks to the certainty of his promise. God's authority is what speaks to the validity of this promise, but his character is what speaks to the certainty of this promise. And, and how do we know this? Again, I told you we'll, we'll hang out in the Psalms. So uh, flip to Psalm 111. It gives us tons of insight into exactly how he could be this certain that God is going to do what he said he'll do. Look at verse, verse 2 and on in Psalm 111. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous deeds to be, I'm sorry, his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works and giving them the inheritance of the nations. The work of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. How does he know? How can he be certain 
that God is going to do what he promised, even though he hasn't seen it yet? Because God's own works testify to the fact that he is trustworthy and true. That's exactly what that psalm says. You have given us your works as a remembrance to remind us that you're faithful, that you're true. You see, God's own character testifies to the fact that we can trust his promises. Because there's never been a promise that he's made that he hasn't kept. There, there is nothing in Scripture that he has promised that he hasn't fulfilled. And that's an important thing that we can, we can hang our hats and our hopes on. And yet, there's also the side of it that's personal. And I believe that's a part of what David knows as well. You see, what he knows is that when he fled from Saul, when he was moving about in the wilderness, living in this cave and that cave, when he was fighting against his enemies, when he went up against Goliath, when he ultimately was king and went out to battle in all of these places, in every one of them, God was faithful to deliver him. And you see, so not only does he have the history of his people to say God is faithful and he will do what he says he'll do, but he has his own personal experience to say God is faithful and he will do what he says he will do. And I wonder, is that true for you? Like, can you look on your life and say God is faithful? Not, not just in the Bible, but he's faithful right now to hold you, to keep you, to provide for you in ways that you didn't even know that you needed to be provided for. I think sometimes we have to stop and we have to just take inventory of those things. And we have to remind ourselves the, way that, the ways that God has been faithful in our life so that we can come to this co same conclusion that David does, right? That, that, that it is certain, that it is an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and true. And, and we can believe it. That if God is gonna, has said he's going to do a thing in and through us, he will accomplish that. And so we have a promise that is valid. We have a promise that is certain. But we also have a promise that is already and also not yet. You see, David says there, he says, For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? This isn't, a, this isn't a, a, a positive affirmation, right? This is, this is a wondering about the things that God has promised. And he can see how God has set into place this kingdom and he has set him over that. We saw that at the top of the text. And he can see how God has accomplished these things. And yet, there is an element of what he has been promised that is not yet fulfilled. And yet he's certain that God will... What does he say? He says he's certain that he will cause to prosper all my help and my desire. He's saying, I'm, I'm hoping in this promise that God has provided. And I believe it. And even though I can't see it yet. You see, what we get a lot of times in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, but even as we move into the, Old, the New Testament, we, we get a shadow. We get a shadow of things to come. And so when God says to David, I'm going to give you a son, an heir that will sit on your throne and that will usher in a new kingdom. Well, there's a part of that that he's about ready to receive. There's a part of that in Solomon that is actually going to take place right in the here and now. But when he says to David that he will sit on his throne forever, in that passage, there's three times where God says that he will be a king unto me forever. Well, there's no way that that's Solomon. Right? Logically, if we think about it, there is no way that Solomon is the king that will sit on David's throne forever. And so there is this recognition that God has done and is doing what he said he will do. And there's also a part of it that we cannot yet see, a part of it that we see in veils and in shadows, but that is revealed in fullness in the Christ. So we see a promise that is valid, a promise that is certain, a promise that is already and not yet, and also a promise of future justice. And we see it there in verse 6 and 7. It says, But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand, but the man who touches them arms himself with iron and shaft of spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. I think in... 
you know, in our modern context, this is probably one of the more difficult things that we have a hard time understanding, uh, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this, uh, this idea of justice and judgment, you see, this was a joyous thing for the people of God. The, the affirmation that God will judge the people that come against his people was meant to be an exciting thing. Because when there is justice, then righteousness prevails. And in one way, David was one who ushered in justice. He cared about a just rule over his kingdom. And in another way, there is a hope for a future justice, a justice that is perfect. A justice that lacks nothing, a justice that sees not as man sees, but a justice that sees on the heart. And right in these words, we get a great picture. And it reminded me, and I, I want to take you guys there, uh, to exactly what is, what is said of Jesus. If you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. Get those thumbs out. Come on, get to working. Matthew chapter 3. We, we're reminded of this passage where where John the Baptist is proclaiming that Jesus is coming. And what does he say about Jesus? He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. That's uh, Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 11. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And look at this. This is exactly the language that we were just talking about in 2 Samuel 23. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He's got an instrument of steel, and he will clear this threshing floor. He'll gather his wheat. Those are those that are his into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. And we get this picture of ultimate justice that will take place where the righteous are, are gathered into Christ and the unjust are burned. And, and, and it's reinforced in Matthew chapter 13, if you want to look over there with me, one more in Matthew, and then I'll let you guys go back to 2 Samuel. In Matthew chapter 13, if you guys are familiar, Jesus tells a whole bunch of parables, a lot of them, all, all focused on what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. And many of them he has to stop and interpret for his disciples to help them see what the meaning of these things is. But each given to give a picture of what the kingdom of heaven is like. And one of those is the parable of the weeds. And I'm not going to read the parable of the weeds to you. I'm going to read the explanation uh, of the parable of the weeds. You see, after the people left, his disciples gathered around and they're like, like Jesus, uh, we don't understand either. Like, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to break this down for us. Like, what does this parable mean? And look at, you guys can read the parable of the weeds later. It's in the same chapter. Uh, but look at his explanation of it. It's in verse 36 in chapter 13 of Matthew. It says, the crowds left and they went into the house and his disciples said, came and said to him, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. That ought to be, that ought to be cause for celebration. They will come, and they're going to gather out all of the causes of sin and all of the lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For what reason? Because then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. You see, Jesus is giving us exactly the reason why as, as uh, David is reflecting on the end of his life, he's thinking about this future justice because when this, this ultimate justice is executed, it will be a joyous day. We'll be able to shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father because there's no more things to bring uh, that glory away, to take that away. And so it's meant to celebrate it as we're thinking about uh, what has already happened as, as David has established this kingdom. And yet, not all of God's enemies had been put away. They're still we're going to struggle on and on. And it gives us uh, much, much cause to stop and to ponder on God's promises. So we've been memorializing uh, David's mission, and he's been pondering on God's promises. And then we move into this section 
uh, which is the remainder of the chapter where he is honoring the heroes of his life. And I'm not going to read all of this to you because it would take us the rest of the time that we have for me to do it, and I would pronounce most of it wrong. Um, but I am going to call out some things to you that I think are, are important as we look at David's mighty men. You see, the, the last thing that he chose to do with these final words was to pay homage to the people who had fought alongside of him, the ones that had stood beside him. Uh, I think it's clear from looking at David's life that the character of his life was one that inspired both loyalty and greatness in those that were around him. And we see that in the way that he honors these heroes and in the way that we remember the legacy of war. That's the first point here. You see, I think sometimes we, I don't know about you, but this is what I do. Like when I think about David, uh, I think about these, the big sort of moments that were given in scripture in his life, right? I think about him being called out of the field and then slaying the giant and then, you know, him and Bathsheba. And that's pretty much it. That's, that's, those are most of the things that like come to mind instantly when I think about David. But the truth of the matter is, is that all of David's life was consumed with fighting and war. It's, it's the reason that we're given why David isn't going to build the temple for God, why God is going to build it through his son Solomon, because there was just too much blood on David's hands for him to be the one that's responsible for that. And so even as he's the one to usher in peace and lay the foundation for what's going to happen, prepare the groundwork for his son to come along and to rule in peace, he's not the one that is going to get to do that because his life was consumed with battle, war after war after war to drive out the inhabitants of the land and to make a place where the people could be at peace. And we see that. We see that in the fact that he takes all of this time to remember these men who have fought alongside him in so many battles more than what we have recorded, right? We don't have all of these uh, recorded in scripture. And yet day after day, week after week, month after month, and year after year, they're going out and fighting in different areas of the kingdom to secure it. And so we remember this legacy of war. We also get a chance to remember the valiant. You see, there's, there's two specific stories that were told in this section. Now, I will read those to you uh, about two, uh, well, about one specific person and then three of them together. So in verse 11, it says, next to him was Shammah, the son of Ag, the Herorite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi. This is the story of what took place, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, so a field full of beans. And the men fled from the Philistines. That's, that's the people of Israel. They gathered in this place to do battle. Everybody fled except for Shammah. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a very great victory. So as we were remembering those valiant warriors that, that fought alongside him, and one we think of here is Shammah, somebody who by himself in the middle of a field, which is a terrible position, like that's not a defensible position. One of the things that made David great as a warrior, right, was that he was always fighting in in a wise way. He had such a way about seeing the battle and going about it that would lead to victory, whether that was in hills or in caves or what have you. And yet this story is about a man who just in an open field in a terrible position decided to take a stand for the Lord and defended him, defended the Lord against all of these Philistines when everybody else had fled. You see, I was, I was uh, listening and, and, and thinking about this and I came across uh, something by Doug Wilson, in fact, where he was talking about this exact passage, and he said, he said, bravery is not bravery in the moment. It's often foolishness. You see, bravery is only bravery after the fact. Bravery happens when you celebrate and you recognize that this was a brave act. In the moment, it's often foolishness. For one man to stand in the middle of a field and fight off Philistines, we can look on it and look back on it when everybody had fled and say, well, man, he was brave. In the moment, he was, he was just willing to be foolish. He was willing to abandon everything and to say, I'm going to do what seems right, and I'm going to defend my God against these other nations. And, and then the next passage that we get there in verse 13 tells us of another story of, of the valiant efforts of these men. It says the three of the 30 
chief men went down and they came about harvest time to David at the cave of Agilom when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim and David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. So, so David is camped out in the mountains. The Philistines have taken Bethlehem. That's their, that's their stronghold. And David, thinking about where he grew up, said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. He longed for that, that city water where he grew up. He's one of the well of the well of Bethlehem. And then three of the mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, and they drew out water out of the well of Bethlehem, and that was by the gate, and they carried it and brought it to David. So three of them were like, okay, we'll go, we'll go do battle against a reinforced city in order to get David this water that he longs for out of the well. And they do, and they're successful. And they brought it to David, but he would not drink it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do, um, I'm sorry, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. And these things the three mighty men did. You see, in this passage, we see, as much as it seems like David probably didn't really intend for them to go and do this, they heard this, this, this cry of their leader, this man that they had pledged their allegiance to, this man that they, because of his character, were willing to follow him anywhere. Uh, they heard him ask for a drink, and so they sieged an entire city in order to get it. And what is his response? It just testifies to his character. He said, this water is way too good for me to drink. Uh, it's not that he poured it out on the ground in a wasteful way. He poured it out as an offering to God because it was given at much cost. And so it wasn't worthy of him. It was only worthy of God. But this, this story also helps us to see the valiant men that he is remembering. And then he's also remembering family. We see it there in uh, verse 18. Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, was chief of the 30, and he wielded a spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name beside the three. And he was the most renowned of the 30 and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. You see, Abishai is mentioned here. Joab is not directly mentioned here, but if you remember, Joab and Abishai are brothers, and they're both the nephews of David. Joab was the commander over all of David's army. Abishai is mentioned as one of these valiant men, and it makes you wonder, why is it that David's family holds this place in these, in these men that he's honoring? I think it goes back again to the character of who David was, Right? He couldn't help but inspire people. The way that he followed after God was contagious. The way that he dealt with people rightly was contagious. And there's no better place for that to be contagious than with his family. Much like me if, and you, if, if we are set out to, uh, to live rightly for God, if we're set out to obey and to do the things that he's commanded us to, and we're inspiring others to do those things, to make disciples who make disciples, there's no other place that that ought to be more evident than in our homes. So it's no wonder that David's family is among the heroes that he's honoring because they were among the people that was closest to him. They were able to see in an authentic way who he was as he was following after God and this wonderful and upright character that he had. And it inspired them to want to fight alongside David and to be part of this small number of people who were named as such valiant warriors throughout his life. So we remember the legacy of war, we remember, we're remembering the valiant, we're remembering family, but we're also remembering those that were grafted in. You see, this whole last section from 25 to 39, I'm not going to read it to you, it would be uh, probably laughable. Uh, it might make for some good conversation on your way to lunch, but uh, you can read it for yourselves. This whole section is full of names. Look at the name that it ends with, Uriah the Hittite. The, the, the man that David stole his wife and had him murdered was one of the 30 most valiant warriors in his entire kingdom. Uh, but all mixed in that list is all kinds of other ites. You see, some of them are named son of this person and that person. That gives a good indication that they're part of a family that are part of the tribe of Israel. But there's a whole lot of ites in there. And so we get to remember those that were grafted in. This is such a great picture 
that the Jews were quick to forget of what God does. God is looking for people that will follow him in obedience with their lives. He does not care about where they came from. He does not care whether they're the people of Israel or they're the people of the surrounding nations. If they are willing to abandon their lives, abandon their people, abandon the things that make them them and follow after God, then they become grafted into his kingdom. He doesn't care if your mother was a Christian. He doesn't care if you were raised in a Christian home. He doesn't care if you have spent every day of your entire life in, ch in church when the doors are open. He does not care about that. He does not care about your parents' hearts. He cares about yours. And so we see that in this picture with David as these men that are listed here are not, most of them, part of the people of Israel, and yet they spent the majority of their lives fighting alongside David because they heard of his God, they believed his God, and they were willing to fight alongside him for the glory of his God. And he became their God. It's, it's the picture of what we see in his great-grandmother Ruth. If you guys remember, over in the book of Ruth, what do we see from Ruth and Naomi, right? Ruth is married to Naomi's son. Ruth's husband dies. Her other son dies. Uh, and Naomi's husband dies. And so it's just Ruth and Naomi that's left. And what does Ruth say to Naomi? She says, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to go with you. Your people will become your people. And your God will become my God. And we see this happening. That, that was that was David's great-grandmother. We see this then happening to David. These men are coming to him and they're saying, you know what, your people are going to be my people. Your God is going to be my God and I will follow him. And there's no better thing that could happen this morning than that somebody would say, you know what, I'm going to abandon the things that have been my life up until now and this God will be my God. What we, what we read earlier this priest that would come, this king that would come, this one that we we're waiting for that was the hope of David's life as he was thinking about the promises that God made, that there would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek that would come. You see what that means is that there would be one that would come that would be both what Melchizedek was, both a king, somebody to rule over the people, and a priest, somebody to intercede on behalf of God. There is no better thing that could happen today because what I, I'm here to tell you is that that promise that David didn't know in full has been fulfilled, and that is Jesus. There is one who is both king and has all authority over heaven and earth, and he sits at the right hand of the Father, ready to intercede on your behalf. So this morning, as the band comes, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the family that you come from. It doesn't matter if you can say, what we said before, I, I grew up in church. It doesn't matter if you can say, this is my first day in a church and I don't know anything about it. What it matters is what we define bravery as, right? It's foolishness in the moment. What the Bible says is that the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. They can't understand why would I put all of my hope for eternity, all of my spiritual eggs in one basket, I'm going to make the hope of my life in, in one man. But that man is both God and man. That man is both a king and a priest. And that is in the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible says he's the way, the truth, and the life. And so there is no better thing that could happen today that, than that somebody would, again, in a way that might seem foolish to some, put all their hope and all their trust in Jesus Christ. And he stands ready to receive you if you would do that today. He's faithful to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But if you know Christ, what, what does this moment look like for you?